When you look at the art of the Dutch masters, you're getting a look at what was a whole new world. After the Reformation, even the art showed that, along with the royals, everyday people mattered too. This was a period in the Low Countries where people could express themselves a bit differently than in other places in Europe. Coming up, guides from Holland and Flanders bring us a fresh look at the artists of the Dutch Golden Age. He is able to, with one brushstroke, create this image of like sleeves or wild colors. We'll also hear what a little bird can tell you about life. Bird expert Noah Stricker shares tales from his observations around the world, from Oregon to the outback, and even the fearless penguins of Antarctica. They'll follow you around just waiting for you to entertain them like you're some gigantic space alien that just dropped in. And where do you really want to travel next? Let's do some exploring together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Parrots can dance, hummingbirds are competitive, and starlings are amazing acrobats. The skies are filled with remarkable things to discover. Coming up, a birding enthusiast shares a few surprises he's learned from observing bird species all around the world. We'll also check in with listeners to hear where you want to travel as we patiently wait for the world to open up safely again. Let's start this hour of Travel with Rick Steves admiring the painters of the Dutch Golden Age and the visual record they left us of their life and times. Instead of being paid to glorify the church and nobility like so much of Europe, the art in the Low Countries was paid for by the wealth of the Protestant merchant class. Our guides are Nico Favaril, who lives near Bruges in West Flanders, and Jodi van Engelsdorp, and she lives in Harlem in North Holland. Nico, Jodi, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So from your perspective as a guide in the Netherlands, how do you see that divide in the art world? Well, of course, it's a lot about the culture of a country. And like you said, our culture is all about the Protestants. And we had the Reformation. And that uh, really created a big difference between some art in other countries and in us. So we have very basic churches. They're all stripped down from all their statues, but also um, our masterpieces. We rarely see any Christian themes, uh, but we always have the merchants. And because we had a Dutch Republic very soon after, yeah, so that is... So if you if you see a Rembrandt, if it's a biblical theme, it'll be from the Bible, but it won't be from some um, pope or something like that. Yes. If you think about, you, you mentioned the Reformation, you have a huge church on the main square in Harlem that was a Catholic church, and it was completely painted. All the, the pillars were painted and everything. Now when you go in... Yeah, it's what? all washed away. Whitewashed. Yes, whitewashed, yeah. Uh, so when the Reformation came, we had iconoclasts where all the Protestants took it down, and then the art was all gone. And how do you recognize what the Protestants really brought into the churches was music, and that is how they really lift up those churches. So in Harlem, you have this giant organ, uh, which more, has more than 5,000 pipes. And you can still go in and listen to it every Thursday they, um, in the summer periods. Uh, then you have a concert for free that you can visit. And then you can hear this organ play. And you can just imagine how old uh, organists would come. So a 10-year-old Mozart also played in this. Hmm. So it's a it's a very different experience, and it's very beautiful. So yeah. maybe four or five hundred years ago, it, it was Catholic, and then we have the Reformation, it becomes Protestant. Uh, Protestants come in there, and they were kind of sort of 
kind of mean, or, or not mean, yes. but they were very uh, extreme. And yes. they threw out all the statues. They busted a lot of the windows. They painted everything white. And then they put up this amazing organ that goes, it's as tall as the building. It goes way to the top of those arches. Yeah, it's it, wild. <laughs> it is wild. And that's something that when you know the story behind it, it, it makes a little more sense. And when you have good information, you know every Thursday there's a free concert. Nico, when you think about the great Dutch painters, who comes to mind? Of course, you think about people like Rembrandt, um, Frans Hals, Vermeer. Mm. My personal is uh, Jan Steen. Why do you um, like Jan Steen? Because um, he has these scenes of just people having fun at home. And it's sometimes a bit double if what he wants to say with paintings. Is so it a double warning? meaning, huh? Yeah, is it the warning that you shouldn't be so um, joyful, maybe, um, in life? Uh, or but they're just fun to watch because there is a so there's a lot of folk wisdom. It's, yes, it's like um, like don't be wasteful, or if yeah. you if you gossip, uh, things bad things will happen. Or there's all these little little lessons about life, but yeah. but not really preaching from the church. Uh, no, but you could interpret it that way, uh, no. and people mm-hmm. could hang it in their houses and say this is yeah. what we shouldn't be doing. Right. But I look at them as oh okay, they're having fun. You know? To me, it's a little intimate look at life. 400 years ago or whenever mm. Jan Steen was painting. But that's a good name to know, Jan Steen, S-T-E-E-N. Yes. Now these are, when I go to a, a gallery in the Netherlands, I see a lot of small paintings by a lot of people whose names I don't know rather than a few big paintings by people who are superstars and highly paid. Mm-hmm. And you got to think it's a different sort of clientele. If you're painting for a king or some bishop, you can paint something big and really expensive. But in the Netherlands, when they got rid of the king and they got rid of the pope, they got to have the open market business people for their clientele, and it needs to be affordable. Mm-hmm. So you have small, unpreachy art, um, or not? Actually, definitely. But like you said, it would be anonymous or from the same workshop, or, or right. that's what you would uh, read. You see the values of the day there. I mean, above the the dining room table, you might have a still life. Yes, still lifes um, is not a personal favorite, but that's something that you will find a lot. What would you see in a still life, typically? Fruits, baskets, fish, because it's the Netherlands, so they would have uh, a lot of uh, fish in there as well, easy to uh, catch. Belgian tour guide Nico Favaril and Jody van Engelsdorp from the Netherlands are helping us better appreciate the breakthrough art of the Dutch Golden Age right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jody, when you go to an art gallery in the Netherlands, what artists do you enjoy most? I love uh, Frans Hals, and I am biased because I am from Harlem, and Frans Hals is from Harlem. Well, originally he is uh, Flemish, so but then he came to Harlem with the Reformation, and that brought all this amazing Dutch artists to us. Uh, he is he's very much appreciated these days because a lot of Impressionists are very much inspired by him because he is able to with one brushstroke to create this image of like sleeves or wild colors and yeah he's very lively so if you look yeah. really close Franz Hals did not want you to look so close because it looks like sloppy brushstrokes but yeah. when you step farther away it's just lively yes it's beautiful and he's not afraid to show emotions where uh, in those days a lot of times people were portrayed uh, separately from each other and uh-huh. he has my favorite painting is um, yeah where they are together like this married couple it's beautiful and you see the you see the love and the, and yeah. the loyalty there and you see symbolism of their wealth ah uh, yeah the symbolism is great and also when we think of Franz Hals the painter that you're talking about 
That's Mr. Um, Dutch Masters, isn't it? I mean, when we think of the famous yes. Dutch Masters. What is that general scene when you look at the, quote, Dutch Masters? What are we looking at? Um, a lot of times we are looking at the merchants. Mm-hmm. So the Dutch Masters, you're looking at the time that we ha- were ha- having the Golden Age. So it's just after the Reformation when um, we became a republic. Mm-hmm. So you don't see kings or anything. You see the people So these were the leaders the of this society, really. Yes, a merchant society. the merchants, yeah. Right. And the merchants, they were, we just were colonizing the world as well. So that is also what you see, is the richness from these colonies that we had. This was the same time as the Dutch East India Company exactly. and, and Henry Hudson and when New York was called New, New Amsterdam. Yes, so yeah. So this is a big time for the Netherlands, and yeah. you had a lot of money. Yeah, everybody wanted to have a painting in their house. The yeah. people who had money, and they wanted to see themselves and in their lives. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with tour guides Jody van Engelstorp and Nico Fabriel from the Netherlands, the Low Countries, Flanders, a place where art really has its own style. There's so much great Dutch and Flemish art, and if we go forward a couple of centuries, we've come to a, a, just a beloved Dutch painter, and a lot of Americans can't even pronounce his name. Nico, who would we be thinking about? I assume you're talking about Van Hoch. Yeah, Vincent. Vincent Van Hoch. Hoch. Yeah. If I say Vincent van Gogh, does it, it must sound terrible to you. Oh, well, we're used to it, <laughs> so used it to doesn't it. really... Van Gogh. <laughs> but Van Gogh is, of course... Uh, Why is um, he so beloved? I think the colors, the um, emotion that you see in the paintings, the, the the history behind the man. He's been there's been movies about him, documentaries. Mm-hmm. His paintings reflect also sadness and tragedy. Yet they're very colorful. Mm. He was sort of groundbreaking in his brushwork too. He is. He wasn't liked at the time that he was painting. Um, I don't think anybody ever paid for one of his paintings no, when he was I think alive. One. I think he sold, he sold one, one painting. Painting. And then somebody found, oh, his, uh, it's incredible how popular he is now compared to how underappreciated yes. he was in his lifetime. Jody, if you want to see Van Gogh in the Netherlands, where do you go? So uh, you could go to the Van Gogh Museum, of course, in Amsterdam, which is a great museum because you can see uh, how his art progressed throughout his life. But if you want to see some of his better pieces, you can go to the Kruller Müller Museum, which is uh, close to Arnhem and also located in a really beautiful nature park. That's a beautiful way to connect the the Dutch nature and the great Dutch artist Van Gogh. Yes, it's really fun. The Kroeller-Muller Museum. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jody Van Engelstorp and Nico Favariel. And let's just finish with, with each of you sharing your famous piece of Dutch or Flemish art. Nico, what's your favorite and why? I'm actually a big fan of uh, Bosch, B-O-S-C-H. Hieronymus Bosch. Yes, and... Um, the Garden of Earthly Delight. It's uh, it's it's five hundred plus years old, but sometimes you see modern art that is as quirky and weird and special uh, as it was back then, and that fascinates me. How yeah, it doesn't matter what time. And this was a period in the Low Countries where people could express themselves a bit differently than in other places in Europe. Yeah, and so you come, you get you know great visual paintings that you won't find in Italy or, or France or Hieronymus Spain. Bosch. When people look at Bosch, they, they usually think, what's he smoking, you know? Yeah. It's just <laughs> so trippy. It's so far out. It's a mix of his <laughs> interesting take on his Christian faith and what was going on at that time and, and the, the, the fantasies and the mysteries of life. Uh, 
about 500 years ago. Now, that particular painting is a big triptych. It's a three-paneled altarpiece, the Garden of Earthly Delights, and it's in Madrid because back then the the Netherlands were called the Spanish Netherlands, ruled yes. by the Spanish king. So a lot of the best Dutch and Flemish art would end up in the court of the king in Madrid. Jody, what's your favorite piece of Dutch art? There are so many good ones, but one I really enjoy is uh, The Milkmaid of Vermeer mm-hmm. um, because it's just... It's so colorful, and then you can just, um, yeah, it's it's very lively. You can look back in time a little bit, yeah. You know, Jody, there's only a, there's only a handful of Vermeers yes. in captivity. I mean, he's such an exquisite artist, but we don't have we only have ten or twenty left, I think, uh, anywhere. Uh, what is it about Vermeer that is so exquisite? He manages to paint every detail, and also uh, the way he captures light is unlike any other painter. Yes. Oh. You can look at a Vermeer painting for a long, long time. And when you go to the Netherlands, you'll probably find more Vermeers per square inch than anywhere else in the world. For sure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a little bit of Dutch and Flemish art with our tour guides, Jody van Engelstorp and Nico Favariel. Thank you both for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear what birds might be able to teach us humans in just a bit. But first, let's hear how you're dealing with putting your travel plans on hold this year. We're at 877-333-RICK, or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Eh, salve, mm, sono Susanna Perrucchini da Roma e sono una guida di Rick Steves. I'm Susanna, Susanna Perrucchini from Rome, and I travel with Rick Steves. And again, in Italian... Salve, sono Susanna da Roma e sono una guida per Rick Steves. Boy, we've had a lot of time to think about our travel dreams lately as we're unable to travel, but uh, we are confident that we'll be able to travel again soon. We're going to take a moment now to hear from some of our travelers about where they're dreaming of going. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Elizabeth's calling in from Media in Pennsylvania. What what are your travel dreams taking you? Well, this year is going to be my 10-year anniversary, and my husband and I were going to relive our honeymoon, which we took to Belgium and Germany. And what we were going to do this year is do the same trip, but revisit a lot of those great places that we found on that first trip, our first trip together to Europe. We were going to relive them and experience them. And obviously, our travel plans have you know, made us postpone that. So we're going to find different ways to celebrate this year, maybe drink a wheat beer in our backyard and reminisce about that trip and hope that as soon as everything opens up and it's safe that we can go back and visit, maybe on our 11th anniversary. Well, I think a lot of people are doing their their 10th anniversary a, a year later. They're putting off their, their weddings, their anniversaries, their special events for when we can actually gather and do what we want to do. I love this idea of going back 10 years later to the same places. What are some of your highlights from 10 years ago that you might want to do again in Bruges, in Brussels, in Rotenburg, in Munich? Exactly. You know, Bruges is such a wonderful place to just walk around and get a little lost and have a conversation with people. So I think we would just 
wander around and get lost again. Did you try the um, beer in Rotenburg? Did, did, you, did you try the beer in Bruges? Because you mentioned the beer oh. in Germany, but I just love the beer in Bruges. Oh, the beer is wonderful there. We found ourselves in a really great beer bar where we were striking up a conversation with a bartender, and he just made a ton of great recommendations for us that I wish I'd written down. Nice. <laughs> so hopefully I can run into him again in that 11th year <laughs> and yeah. write down his recommendations. I met so many Americans doing a little extended weekend beer gourmet tours from uh, the East Coast of the United States, just flying over to Belgium and uh, having four days of just gourmet food and great beer in Bruges. It's a beautiful place just to be settled in. And then uh, what? how about Rotenburg? Rotenburg's a classic little medieval German town. Oh, we loved Rotenburg, and we did a ton of touristy and non-touristy things there. Obviously, the Night Watchman tour mm. is a highlight, and we would absolutely have to do that again. It was so entertaining. Um, but really just walking around the mm-hmm. edge of the town along the wall. It's such a cool walk. It has such great stunning views if the weather is good. Mm. And it really gives you that chance to earn that beer at the end of that hike. Oh, for sure. And if you remember the Night Watchman's tour, he's he's sort of got Albrecht Durer hair, you know, this amazing German uh, curly locks. And he's got this twinkle in his eye. And he gathers a bunch of English-speaking tourists together uh, each evening, and he does his uh, Night Watchman's walk. That's just a gorgeous chance to in kind of a fun, entertaining way, go back to the Middle Ages, isn't it? It's a really cool experience that is great for anyone of any age. Hey, well, I hope that you get it together, or we all get it together, so we can uh, make these travel dreams come true, and let's count on uh, that 10th anniversary for your 11th anniversary, going back to those highlights in Europe. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Miguel is calling from Olympia in Washington. Hi, Miguel. Hey, I'm not Olympia, Greece, but Olympia, Washington, and we had our plans canceled to go to Greece, so we want to go back, and we want to go to Ikaria, a little island off the uh, in the Aegean Sea where people lived to be over 100. So Ikaria, that's uh, named after Icarus. Icarus, who flew too close to the sun, and legend has it, when he landed in the water, he washed up on the little island of Icarus huh. or Ikaria. Well, he didn't live to be 100, but um, I think you're mentioning people there live to be 100, uh, and you're going to go on an adventure there and probably find out why. Why do you think people live to be 100 on this island in Greece? Well, there's actually been studies, and it's, like they say, it's a blue zone. There's like four in the world, like Okinawa, and uh, this is one of the places. But uh, community and work, uh, socializing, uh, the Mediterranean diet, a lot of them open drink, and, et yeah. cetera. Well, they smoke and drink, and they dance into the wee hours, but uh, they don't have much stress, <laughs> that's for sure, and they got the Mediterranean <laughs> diet. That's fascinating, and uh, you'll go there, and you'll just see people that have been enjoying that tempo of life since yeah. since yeah. before World War II. Yes, yeah, so that's my understanding, is a lot of the folks were sort of moved from the mainland there when mm-hmm. the war ended because of their socialist views, but, you know, Rick, when we call the next I certainly got a sense of how laid back it is because uh, they didn't ask for a credit card. They didn't ask for anything. Uh, they basically said, well, we'll see you when you get here. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And those people deserve to live a long time. I wish everybody was that laid back. It just reminds me, Miguel, you know, hanging out on a Greek island or on on the mainland of Greece even, there's just something about live for the moment. You know, don't be uptight. Uh, have another glass of wine you know, hang out with your family. There's, it's a real lesson in slowing down. And I, I think it's a therapy for a workaholic to, to go to these small towns in Greece and then 
and then embrace the local tempo of life. I think that, to me, is the one of the benefits of traveling and to bring that back home. Maybe you'll bring us uh, a souvenir home called Longevity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Miguel, thanks so much for your call. I yeah. hope you get to Ikaria, right? Ikaria. Let, let us know how it goes. Yeah. and Call me back in 30 or 40 years, and then we'll talk. All right. All right. Keep on traveling. Keep on traveling. <laughs> thanks, Miguel. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Mary's on the line in Wilder in Kentucky. Mary, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Rick. I appreciate the time talking to you today. Um, we have been dreaming about going back to Edinburgh. We were supposed to go in um, April, but clearly the pandemic canceled our plans. Uh-huh. We went once before in 2005 and have been just wanting to go back so very much. I'm wanting to go back, too. I just spent some beautiful time in Edinburgh last year, and I just loved it uh, just so much. It's a, it's a city that is just designed for a visit. It's pedestrian-friendly. It's got so many lovely people and a history that's accessible. I hope you can get back there. Oh, so do we. We've been reading up on it and, you know, watching your shows and watching YouTube videos. And, yeah. you know, it's just, as you said, there's people are nice. There's so much to see that the castle, the museums. Yeah. We were really looking forward to doing some day trips, yeah. uh, particularly one to Luss, which is on Loch Lomond. Ah. And that's where the, my ancestors came from on my father's side. Okay. And I've never been there, and I was really looking forward to what I hope is going to be a humbling and um, empowering experience to look upon the lands that they looked upon. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I would recommend uh, just let them know you're coming. Contact the tourist board. Contact whoever you can in that town. Let them know they've got uh, a distant relative coming into town. And I I bet you might be surprised at what doors that might open. Oh, I'm hoping so. I I do understand that uh, my uh, family's clan is still a big deal in that community. And there's even a little museum um, so I'm hoping we can get a peek inside of that when we get over there. You know, Mary, I was, I've spent a lot of time in Scotland in the last few years because we've made three TV shows there, and our tour program is just really, it's one of the most popular destinations in Europe for us these days. And one thing I noticed is the clans each have their own ancestral sort of um, mecca, their castle, the place that is their sort of sacred uh, where they go. It's their history. And you go there, and it's, uh, you know, there's tourists, there's regular tourists, but there's also people with that same last name, you know, the the Campbells or or whatever, that are visiting this place versus that place. And to go there and, and find your clan's uh, sacred castle, it just is, it's something that makes me jealous. I wish I had Scottish heritage to enjoy that. Well, hopefully it'll all work out for us. We are yeah. truly looking forward to it and dreaming about it during this difficult time. Yeah. Remember um, when you're in Edinburgh, a side trip over to Glasgow, too, because Glasgow is um, is just a, a dose of today's Scotland in so many ways, and it's just 45 minutes away by train. Very easy to make a day trip to Glasgow. It has a reputation of kind of a rough-and-tumble, you know, um, hard-working town where the shirts are sold with their sleeves already rolled up. When you go there, you find it's got a, a real rugged charm that you'll appreciate. It complements the kind of more sophisticated charm of Edinburgh, I would say. Great. That's a great tip. Thank you. We'll yeah. make sure to include that in our itinerary. All right. Mary, thanks so much for checking in and let us know how your trip goes when we're all able to travel again, I hope, soon. We certainly will. Thank you. Bye now.
This is Travel with Rick Steves, and it's fun to check in with our traveling listeners. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Andy is calling in. Andy's in Buford, Georgia. Hi, Rick. Thanks for uh, taking my call. You bet. What are you thinking about lately as we're locked down waiting to be traveling again? Well, I'm thinking of Italy. My uh, wife and I, we did a pre-honeymoon to Italy back in 2015 and fell in love with the country. We went to Rome and we went to uh, Florence, saw the art there in Florence. My wife was a uh, art major in college, so just to see those great uh, works of art there in uh, Florence and Rome in real life just blew her away. Mm. And the experience that we had, we, we continue to talk about every every time. And now, fast forward five years, we have two kids that we take to Europe probably once a year. We're the brave, brave souls. Yeah. But, uh, we, we went to um, Amsterdam and Paris and Barcelona last year mm-hmm. on a nice train trip through France and had a great time. But uh, this, this year we were thinking about going to uh, Italy back again. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully once everything opens up, we'll go back to Italy so our two kids will get to experience it. But uh, we've done the train travel with two small kids, and it's not the most nope. uh, That's tough. enjoyable That's time. Tough. How, how old are your kids, Andy? Uh, they are four and two. Four and, and two, uh, yeah. yeah. I would recommend getting a rental car. But I would remind you that a car is an expensive uh, and worthless headache in the big cities. I was just talking with somebody the other day how they just received a ticket a year later from uh, Verona, I think, one of the cities in Italy, because they accidentally drove in an area that they weren't supposed to drive. And the sign says in perfect Italian, you know, don't drive in here or you're going to get a $100 uh, uh, penalty, but uh, tourists are the easy pickings, and they make a lot of money off of us that way. But apart from that, it's just you don't want a car in Rome or Venice or Florence, and you can get to those yeah. places very easily. And then other places, I was just thinking about uh, Verona. This is where my friends were so in Verona, and you just at the edge of town, you pull into the underground parking lot, and you just leave it, and then you walk to your hotel from there, and you don't even think about your car while you're in the town. It's important just to bite the bullet and pay to park and then yeah. uh, be free from that car and pay to park it legally because it's really expensive to do anything wrong because they're going to find you and they know how to, they know because of your license plate uh, where the car comes from and your car rental people know what your credit card is and where your address is and you'll end up paying that uh, that ticket whether you're on the other side of the planet or not. But uh, I would recommend doing the, the country in uh, two kind of uh, zones. First, do the big cities without a car and then pick up a car and enjoy having the car to do the countryside. That makes a lot of sense. And with kids, it's so much easier, isn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, trying to get uh, strollers and mm-hmm. backpacks off of a train was uh, yeah, that's not... it, it uh, was very stressful, um, <laughs> uh, to say the least. It sure is. And with kids that age, even in early years of school, I would take them out of school and, and go in the off-season, you know, go in uh, March or April or November when it's not so hot and crowded. Yeah, that's typically when we uh, will go on the shoulder seasons, yeah. just simply because it's very cost-friendly oh, yeah. during those we'll times as well. Um, plus, the crowds are, are lighter, which is great. Yep. Um, but one of, that's one of the shocks that kind of blew my wife and I away when we went to Europe uh, the first time with our, our kids was how friendly the Europeans are with small kids. Oh. It was kind of like 
come straight to the front of the line. You've got oh, a little baby. Let's get them well, out of the rain. Let's get them. Especially in Italy. And if you're trying to keep your kids on a healthy diet, good luck, because they're going to give them all sorts of sweets that they're just going to love. Yeah, right, Andy. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. It's fun to check in with our travelers and see how we're dealing with this little window when we cannot put our travel dreams into action. Carolyn's on the line in San Diego, California. Carolyn, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. How are your travel plans doing? Oh, I'm sad, very sad. Yes. I had to cancel. I had almost a month tours booked in for October. Uh, arriving in Paris for like a week or two and then going to take a car and drive up to Lille in northern France, which I understand is a beautiful, and maybe stop in the Louvre lens on the way and then maybe head up to Belgium and maybe go out to the coast of Normandy, you know, mm. do some day trips there. You had done some good planning. Oh, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sigh was, you, you nailed it. That's how I feel. I, I had like three months of travels carefully planned. It was going to be a wonderful, wonderful trip. And uh, it just broke my heart to have to cancel all, every little thing I put together. Oh, yeah. I haven't even, uh, you know, I don't know what. I had the foresight to only book hotels that had no cancellation fees. Well, that was good. So I just yeah. haven't had the... the uh, I haven't wanted to cancel the last ones, but I'm going to have to do it. Yeah. I left a few dates on my calendar just, I don't know why. It just made me sad, but I, I left. The, today I was going to fly to Poland. You know, and uh, no, I'm not going to do that. That's, but I'll do it when we can travel again. So what, what are you going to do in the interim then? Oh, gosh, you know, I'm going online. Uh, uh, there are several tour guides in Paris who are doing live walking tours from there and environs. Yes. Or you can watch them afterwards. Good for you. I've been on some of those, and they are wonderful. And in fact... Yeah, it's, uh, and you can watch the old ones and... Yeah. Uh, if you can work the timing out, you can go live and see exactly what it's like there right now. So, I love it. You know, I was just—I've never been to Bordeaux. It's a place I want to go, and uh, I've never been there in in, uh, in France, in southern France. And a friend of mine is a guide, and she lives in Bordeaux, and she takes uh, virtual tours. And I I logged onto her tour. And it was like, you know how a guide meets you on the on the sidewalk and she goes, Okay, everybody, and she you know, she goes, We're waiting just a minute for a few more people to come and now we're gonna head off. And she took us on a it was a perfect casual point of view, visual experience, and I felt like I was in Bordeaux. One thing we've done, I've got about a hundred guides that work with me in my tour program, and of course they're freelancers and they're without work right now and, and guides just have to teach. They just have to share. And so many of them are doing creative ways to share their their beloved cities and regions with uh, travelers from far away uh, online during this lockdown. And at our website at ricksteves.com, it's the, uh, it's the, we'll call it the Guides Marketplace. You know, we can't sell our tours, but we can put our travelers in touch with guides over there. A lot of it is free, and there's wonderful ways they're sharing their uh, passion and their ability to teach and their language and their cuisine and, and you name it. So... Guides are doing creative things, and I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of us wish we could be there. We can't be there, but we can be there virtually, and it's certainly not as good as the real thing, but it's a lot better than nothing at all. Well, and the guide I subscribe who's really into arts and history, and he does a free tour. The live tour is actually free, and you can find him online. Mm -hmm. And then he has a monthly program that you subscribe to. 
I'm even carrying the five dollars a month, even though I lost most of my income from mm. the pandemic. Yeah. I can still put in that five dollars a well, month that's for great. his extra online shows. All right. Well, I hope you can get your daily dose of Europe that way. Carolyn, thanks for your call. Thanks so much, Rick. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. This year, we're celebrating 15 years of travel with Rick Steves. So, from time to time, we'll revisit a favorite guest interview that we haven't heard for a long while. Up next, Noah Stricker explains why he travels the world to admire and study birds and what our feathered friends have to tell us about our own lives if we just take the time to listen. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Some people will travel to the ends of the earth just to see what nature can teach them up close. From an early age, Noah Stricker's interest in learning about birds has flown him all over the world. He's studied avian habitats from his home base in Central Oregon, hiked the length of the Pacific Crest Trail, and marveled at what he saw in the skies of the Amazon and the outback. In 2015, he set a record for the number of bird species he observed on all seven continents. He writes about his big year in his book, Birding Without Borders. Today, Noah divides his time between seasonal fieldwork guiding in the Arctic and Antarctic, and writing as an associate editor at Birding Magazine. We first spoke with Noah when he released his book called The Thing with Feathers, The Surprising Lives of Birds and What They Reveal About Being Human. Hey, Rick. Nice to be here. You observe that birds are highly intelligent, uh, but their intelligence is different from human intelligence and therefore often misunderstood. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, we often refer to being bird-brained. <laughs> That's right. And uh, huh. and I think attitudes on that are changing. You know, just in the past couple of decades, scientists have, have been studying birds in a different way than they were before. So traditionally, we've been so focused on defining ourselves as humans and separating us from yeah. the rest of the animal kingdom. And now lately it's switched, and we're more studying how we're similar to our feathered friends and, and other animals out there. A lot of people call me bird-brained, and, and now I can say, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's a compliment. All right. So, But how, how is their intelligence different from human intelligence? How are they misunderstood? Well, I think it's hard to know what it's like to be a bird, and, and we can only get at it from various angles of, of studying birds in labs and watching their behavior in the field. But I think that, that birds have the same basic needs that we do as people. They need food and water and shelter and and they want to raise a family and they want to leave a legacy and they want to live a good prosperous life just like we do and so in writing this book i was surprised by many of the bird behaviors that we are studying in hardcore science now how you can apply those back to us and even learn a few lessons about ourselves from the world of birds so what's an example uh well i got interested in self-image in birds (laughs) In other words, when a bird looks in a mirror, what does it see? Because you wrote about how magpies are particularly distinct in this uh, ability. They actually can recognize themselves in a mirror. Exactly, and, and we tend to take that for granted as humans. Because uh, humans can do that, but that's, that's unusual in the animal kingdom. Uh-huh, and there's a test you can do called the mirror test, which is where you put a little speck of paint 
on an animal's forehead and put it in front of a mirror and then watch what happens. And if it looks at the mirror and it starts scratching its forehead, it means it recognizes its reflection and it realizes it had something weird on its face. Oh. But if it attacks its reflection or tries to mate with its reflection or walks around the <laughs> well, backside of the mirror to look for this other animal, then then that's a fail. And, <laughs> so. Now, that's a dumb bird who sees <laughs> yeah. himself in the mirror and tries to mate with it. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. <laughs> it happens. You have an interesting job. All right. What about memory? I mean, uh, you, you write about uh, how nutcracking birds have uh, memory that can rival or even surpass human memory. Yeah, there's this bird called a Clark's Nutcracker which lives in the high mountain pine forests of western North America. They're related to crows and magpies, so they're in that family of birds called corvids, which is known to be pretty clever. Hmm. And they have one special claim to fame. Nutcrackers every year in the late summer and fall gather pine seeds and then cache them in the ground, burying them just like squirrels. And uh, the thing is, one individual nutcracker might in one season bury tens of thousands of pine seeds and then be able to remember where every single one of them is even months later even sometimes after a couple feet of snow have fallen on the ground so they could play like you know that card game concentration they would kill us they'd be very good at concentration (laughs) this is travel with rick steves we're talking about nutcrackers and birds trying to mate with themselves in the mirror and all sorts of interesting things with noah stricker and noah's written a book called the thing with feathers sharing what he has observed from studying birds for a long time. He's the associate editor of the American Birding Magazine. And Noah, you've done a lot of travels. As a well-traveled birder, what are some of the most wildly rewarding places you've ever gone that we might, as travelers, consider going and uh, looking at birds? Well, first of all, just being a birder, one of the best things about it is that you get to travel so much because the thing about birds is Everywhere in the world you go, there will be birds there. Even if you go to the South Pole, birds have been recorded there. And so birding takes you to places that you would never go to otherwise, and I think that's really cool. What's an example? Where have you gone because you were looking for birds and you realize, hey, birds are not, I'm glad I went here. Well, other than the local landfill and sewage pond and uh, (laughs) airport runway, those are all good places to go bird watching. But it seems like birding is like this treasure hunt, and it gives you a map and a quest, and then it's up to you to go out and find the birds. So this year, I spent a couple months in the high Arctic up on Svalbard, which is an isolated island archipelago about a thousand miles north of Norway. And that is a very cool place. In terms of bird diversity, it doesn't have a lot of species, because as you go toward the poles, there are fewer and fewer birds. But the ones that are found there are really cool. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Noah Stricker about birds. Allie emailed us from Spokane in Washington, and and Allie writes, "Uh, We loved seeing puffins on Haystack Rock at Cannon Beach in Oregon in the summertime. Do you have any recommendations for a good pair of binoculars that would help us see birds like this up close? Okay, yeah, well, first of all, Haystack Rock is a great place, probably the best place in Oregon to see tufted puffins and so if you're there between about april and august you can go out to the beach and use any old pair of binoculars or even a camera to zoom in on any of the green areas around the rock and you'll see tufted puffins sitting next to their nesting burrows and they're a beautiful bird Mm. now what about binoculars birders must just that's the most essential tool i would think Yes, so my advice on buying any sort of optics, including binoculars, is always 
just suck it up and spend as much as you possibly can because <laughs> mm. the the highest end ones really are worth it if you're going to be using your pair of binoculars in the field for mm -hmm. you know the rest of your life potentially mm -hmm. it's worth it to have a really good pair now how big of an issue is the size of it because as travelers we like things that are portable do you compromise a lot to get something smaller I really like the pair of binoculars I use are Leica's and they are a 8 by 32 pair and they're fairly compact so I can wear them around my neck mm -hmm. all day long as I do sometimes and even forget them on and <laughs> take them to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> These birders take their binoculars to that dinner. Happens once in a while. <laughs> all right. You know, um, in your book, you talk about all of these different um, aspects of bird intelligence. And you talk about fairy wrens that are actually charitable. They exhibit altruism. How, how can you observe a bird and figure out that they have a charitable heart? What fairy wrens do is very interesting because it's rare in the bird world. They are cooperative nesters. So they nest on riparian areas, which are along streams. And a dominant pair will set up a territory, just like other birds do, and keep all the other fairy wrens off it so that they can have access to all the food that's there and build a nest and raise their chicks. The thing that's different with fairy wrens is they will allow sub-adult younger birds to squat on their territory and not chase them away as long as those younger birds essentially pay their rent by helping feed the chicks in the dominant pair's nest. So you end up getting sometimes seven or eight different fairy wrens all bringing food in and tending the same nest, which ah. is quite unusual. Ah, that just sounds amazing. And then the key is as a, a birder to realize, to be able to observe this and then actually to be able to try to draw conclusions from that, that they are being charitable. Well, that's the question is, are these younger birds who are helping feed the nest, is this, you know, an example of altruism or are they just coldly calculating uh, their chances of inheriting this territory when the older birds die and then they can move in and eventually have chicks of their own? So it's, you can kind of see this either way, that either altruism exists in the universe and you can do something purely out of the goodness of your heart and this applies to people too, or do all of our actions ultimately, are they all selfish? Now, some of my favorite memories with birds are, are sitting on the deck of my cabin on a cruise ship and tossing, lobbing little chunks of cracker or, or bread up into the sky, and these seagulls will uh, time it, and they'll swoop around and grab it like acrobats in midair. And it seems to me that the birds are, are playing. But somebody told me birds don't play. Everything for them is just trying to get enough food to survive. Are they actually playing? Uh, do they enjoy this, or are they just thinking food? Personally, I think that birds totally play. I've watched penguins slide down hills and then get to the bottom and walk back up to the top and <laughs> do it again. I love it. Last year, there was a viral video going around of a crow that was using a little piece of plastic to sled down a rooftop, and then it would carry it back up to the top and do it again. Nice. I've seen birds in, on statues in Siena line up and slide down the snout of a sculpted uh, animal just to get to the end to drink out of the fountain that's spurting out of his mouth. And I just stared at it for the longest time, and it really seems to me that they are just having fun. Yeah, there's no reason, evolutionarily speaking, that something like playing should be limited to us humans. Noah Stricker's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
He's the author of several books that take us around the world, including The Thing with Feathers, The Surprising Lives of Birds and What They Reveal About Being Human. He also co-authors National Geographic's Backyard Guide to the Birds of North America, and he writes the text for their close-up photo book, Birds of the Photo Ark. The year after we talked with Noah, he set out on 12 months of bird-watching travels around the globe. Noah kept an extensive blog of daily dispatches from New Year's Day in Antarctica to New Year's Eve in India. It's on his website, noahstricker.com. That's spelled S-T-R-Y-C-K-E-R. Noah, when you, when you think about the activities of these birds and trying to better understand it, I was just on YouTube looking at this thing called murmuration with starlings, like billions of starlings, uh, flying in close formation and zigzagging all around the sky in unison, like as if they were following the baton of some cosmic conductor. When you sit down and look at a giant flock of starlings in tight formation, swerving left, swooping right, what do you think? How do you explain that? Well, for anyone who hasn't heard of a starling murmuration, you should go to YouTube right now and type in the word murmuration and see what you get. Murmuration is just the collective noun for a flock of starlings, and they make these huge flocks in the winter, usually around dusk, just before they go to their roost for the evening. And sometimes they can contain more than a million individual birds in one flock. And so from a distance, when they're swirling around, forming these intricate patterns that look sort of like smoke, it's hard to stand there and not just look at them and wonder, how do they all manage not to bump into each other and fall out of the sky? (laughs) How do they? Well, for many years, biologists have scratched their heads about how to study big flocks of birds like this. They act kind of like swarms of insects. They act kind of like big schools of fish, uh, but they're different. And it's kind of like trying to study a tornado. Capturing that in the act and then somehow taking data off of it is very difficult. And it was only recently when a group of Italian physicists decided to look at starlings. These guys had virtually never looked at birds in their entire lives. They were mathematicians. And they approached it from a particle physics standpoint and tried to write equations that would describe starling flocks. And they came up with some interesting results where they were comparing starling flocks to things like avalanches breaking loose from mountains and pieces of iron becoming spontaneously magnetized. So maybe it's all just strictly mathematical. And as far as we can tell, these flocks of starlings and probably fish have no leaders. They're very organic and they just behave almost according to certain rules and laws of the universe that govern these very intense patterns. Fascinating. You know, uh, albatrosses are famous for having both long lives and also mating for life. How is it that albatrosses have such a a low divorce rate? Yeah, we've studied albatross divorce rates. In other words, what percentage of pairs of albatrosses will split up before one of them dies? And in some cases, that can be as low as 0.1%, which is pretty crazy, and it kind of makes you wonder about the 0.1%. Better than humans. (laughs) Yeah, human divorce rates are around 40 to 45% around the world, and that puts us on about the same romantic level as a seabird called the Nazca booby. (laughs) Spoken like a good birder, relating human divorce rates to the animal kingdom. And speaking of falling in love, the the bowerbird is famous for um, creating his own little bachelor pad, right? Tell me about how that can be appealing and effective to get a mate. Bowerbirds are interesting. They live in Australia and New Guinea, and the male bowerbird will build a structure in the forest that looks like a little hut, usually, that he will then decorate 
with various colorful objects that he finds around the forest, like uh, brightly colored berries and leaves and uh, wings torn off of colorful beetles, and make these elaborate arrangements that are strictly visual, that has no purpose at all other than to attract the attention of a passing female, and if she likes his display, she'll mate with him, and then go off and build her own nest by herself and raise the chicks, and, and he will continue living in his bachelor pad, hoping to attract another female. So bachelors can learn from the bower bird to decorate their place a little bit, and they may get a little better, better luck. The prettier it is, the more females it attracts. <laughs> now, you wrote a book about penguins a few years ago called Among Penguins. Tell me about studying penguins, and, and how are they unique? I, I know that people are just wild about penguins, especially when they've seen them on one of these trips down to Antarctica. And I understand penguins only live in Antarctica, right? Well, there are 18 kinds of penguins in the world, more or less, depending on how you define a species. And only two of them are totally restricted to Antarctica. So the other 16 oh. you can find on the southern parts of South America and South Africa and New Zealand and Australia and a bunch of sub-Antarctic islands. Okay. What's your favorite thing about penguins? Penguins just have this incredible charisma and energy and personality and curiosity about them. If you ever get the chance to walk around a colony of Adelie penguins in Antarctica, it is an extraordinary experience because these birds have grown up without any fear of predators on land. And so they have no fear of us. They'll walk right up to you, untie your shoelaces, run circles around your feet. <laughs> They'll come up and preen the side of your pants like you're some gorgeous mate they want to be with for the rest of their life. They'll follow you around just waiting for you to entertain them like you're some gigantic space alien that just dropped in. So that's because they have no predators? Right. So all the other continents have land predators on them. And, sure. And for something like a penguin, that might mean that they would get eaten. So what a beautiful thing. If you can put up with the cold of Antarctica, you don't have any predators, and then you don't need to be afraid of strange men. <laughs> Sounds like an ideal life, doesn't it? It just gets down to about 80 below in the If winter. you can handle the cold. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking birds with Noah Stricker and... Noah, how on earth did you get so enamored with, with birding? How'd you get started in this? I had a teacher in the fifth grade who put a bird feeder on our classroom window that suction cupped right up to the glass. And she'd stop class every time a new bird showed up and make us identify it. And the other six kids in my class thought this was the dumbest thing ever. And for me, for some reason, something sparked and I got interested in identifying birds and I went home and started trying to figure out what was in my backyard. My mom and dad have about 20 acres of forest outside of town, so our yard is very birdy. And from there, it was just an addiction that has never, ever stopped. And what are some of the places you've traveled with your uh, curiosity about birds? So far, my interest in birds has taken me to six continents. Africa will be my last. The coolest places I have lived have been in the Amazon, in Costa Rica and Panama, in the Australian outback, and in Antarctica. And the best place is always the next one. Nova Stricker, thanks so much for joining us, and best wishes with your birding, and, and uh, thanks for inspiring all of us to be a little more attentive to these surprisingly intelligent creatures that are flying all around us, all over this planet. My pleasure.
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more to the show on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.